It's often overlooked that most forms of value are fundamentally very human and social in nature. So today, we thought it would be fun to have a look at money from an anthropological perspective. You don't have a spiritual moment with it every day. Before. I'm a product of the 1990s rape scene. I took a lot of risk. Because someone is a big spender, it does not mean they are rich. Paid $5 for this? What the heck? We're the Golden State too. Kind of buck the whole system. My mom calls my dad a cheapskate. Oh, no. Always live below your means. Wars are inflationary. It feels wrong. <laughs> it's just so tempting, isn't it? Puts it? them closer to their, their god. All right, Paco, thank you so much for coming out. I love Pleasure. the conversations we've had over the years. And talking about money is one of the most fascinating things around. But... Usually it's in terms of just American dollars or in the history of America or it's political in the frame of the United States. But it's so much bigger than that when you think about how value interacts across the world. So maybe today you could just explain why is it important to see money through the eyes of the cultural history of a country in addition to thinking of it as, you know, a bookkeeping or mathematics. You know, looking at money through the eyes of different cultures is very important to mm -hmm. really understanding how we interact with it globally, especially yeah. in a globalized world. Right. Everything's all connected. You know, everything is interconnected. Everything is, um, you know, we, we can't, the way we live our lives today is through how we interact with money, but mm. also it's very important of understanding how money is seen in other cultures. Mm. One of the best examples is uh, is the Chinese culture. Okay. China is, is a great example, uh, and a lot of Asian countries are, are really good examples of how they see money and they see uh, the value of things like gold and silver and precious metals and, and how they interact with money, especially during the spring festival, which is this huge, it's the largest migration of people over a two week period of time Every uh, spring uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, people travel, uh, you know, to their homes. You know, you're, you're talking about 100 million people moving across China or more, wow. you know, mm. trying to get to yeah, their uh, trying to get to their um, to celebrate. I mean, the country shuts down for two weeks. And so they celebrate what? Chinese New Year. They're really getting into, you know, the, the spring festival, celebrating, you know, change, the, the mm -hmm. growth. But they also celebrate money. This is an important mm. time of the year, very auspicious time of the year for them. And so the celebration of, uh, you know, you know, red and gold, oh, yeah. how gold plays a major part in their culture. So it's okay mm. for and them to flaunt money. They love. They celebrate it. I mean, oh, they, they have. They yeah. have a. The Chinese have a lot of gods and goddesses, and one of their most important god is um, Kaishen, who is the the god of wealth. And so they're, you oh. know, they're giving away. Um, they they have something called hell money. They, you know, that they. Um, they put in the mouth of the, the, of the dragons yep. and of the, of the during the lion dance. Oh, yeah. They uh, also burn money. Wow. And to give money to the spirits, they also uh, what else? I mean, there, there's so much that they do. Whoa. So it's like a polytheistic culture, and so there's multiple gods. But then you're saying some of them represent different things, and some of them, Absolutely. in particular, with money, make it okay to kind of talk about money in terms of that religious and connection the chinese in particular have a very interesting relationship with gambling and games of chance and here in las vegas what's fascinating and and we've been rolling out the red and gold carpet for asian tourists since the early 1980s 
Uh, mm. You can go anywhere on the Strip today uh, and see how the hotels decorate the resorts sure. for Chinese they New Year. definitely oh, and, I, and I, a big shout region. out to all us Tigers. This is the year of the Tiger, which is my <laughs> oh, year. Good. That's yeah. me too. And so, oh, oh, nice. It's, uh, you know, this is... It's really amazing what we've done here in Las Vegas. There is a very famous temple out in Caesar's Palace, and it's uh, it's a, a Brahmin temple, and it's a beautiful shrine out there that you know gamblers, serious gamblers, the whales that come out to the you know whales are the those high Vendors, high right? high rollers, right? And so they spend they're okay with spending twenty million dollars a roll of dice, Goodness. you know, or more. And they'll go out, you'll go out there, especially during the Spring Festival or Chinese New Year, you'll see, you know, incense burning constantly, people praying out there. And it is a very, very sacred place. And, and it, you know, it's, it's really hmm. fascinating to see uh, how Asian cultures really embrace gambling and games of chance. Is there a lot of comfort with like possi the possibility of losing that money too? Like, is that so is that oh, like, like a really bad thing? Aspect? Like, say they do, you know, lose a million dollars. Is that like a really bad sign, or is that just kind of like, oh, it's part of the celebration? It, it yeah. could be a bad sign. It could be the spirits are angry. Something's okay. not right in the um, in 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 the universe so yeah. bankruptcy so, might not look like a failure of the human spirit it might seem like something beyond their control if they tr if they start a business and they go bankrupt you know bankruptcy is interesting because uh you know in, in the united states we we're okay with giving people a second chance and as someone who has gone through bankruptcy before i you know, being able to have that, knowing that I won't be sent to a, a debtor's prison like we would in, <laughs> do they do that in China? Other countries. No, no, they don't do that in China. Oh, but but there know, are parts of the world where you different. don't get to there, you know, go bankrupt. Years ago, if you lived in Europe, yeah, you would be sent to a debtor's I mean, prison. Yeah, that's true. They'd be like, you know, they'd take everything that you had. Yeah. You know, so the, the, the old adage or the old cartoon with the guy wearing the barrel, that was a thing, you know. <laughs> so when they, they would take everything, they'd take the shirt off your back. So maybe for a baseline, we could talk about our relationship with money. So I guess I'll start with Ashley. Like when you and your family are together, how is money talked about? Is it something that you avoid or you talk freely about? Or is it usually expectations and that's the only light that it's seen under? Or My family, it, we talk pretty openly about money. At least my parents and I, they taught me very early to be like a saver and an investor. And that, you know, when you get money, you don't just spend it like you you plan for it like you you have some save for for fun but also for just in case so there's like a lot of different ways money should be used and, and saved for mm. um so do you feel a pressure when you're around them um i mean they do check i i just uh went i just had an mba i just got my mba and mm. i i didn't have to go into debt for that thank you and yeah. you know they were obviously very proud of me for that reason and they mm -hmm. that's kind of what they would expected though that was kind of like you know you save for that like it was never, you know, it was like save for it ahead of time. Don't, you know, get loans. And that's mm. not, that's, you know, most people use loans and that's kind of like the norm, but yeah. my family's kind of like save up beforehand right? Very and then smart. pay, then yeah. you don't have to pay yeah. more for it later. Like anything exactly. we can do to not pay interest is like, like when I got my first car, I paid in cash. I didn't want to pay any interest. You were like, So it's kind of like that. you save up and then you get it. It's always been like, that's how I was taught. And I think that's how my parents always were. So, um. Right. I, you know. And you're because you work in finance, and is that what you and your friends tend to talk about too? My or, friends and or do you kind of avoid it? My friends and I will talk about money, but it's more, it's not really how much we spend. It, we, I have a group of friends, and also because we are females, and, and females, you know, we don't make 
as much per dollar. That's just how it is. So we would sometimes be like, hey, like oh. I just got a raise or I'm looking to get a raise. Like, what did you do? Like we are in we are in pretty similar, you know, spots in our career and uh -huh. in finance. So you'd expect we'd make around the same. So when we hear like one girl is making less, we're like, oh, like we you should be making more. Like we can we want to help each other. We want to support wow. each other to um to make as much as as we as we deserve and that we that we earn so um when i got a raise recently like i shared that with my friends because i know they would celebrate it just along with me it's not a competition ever yeah. um and you know just because i was also taught growing up that just because someone is a big spender does not mean they are rich like yeah. there's a very different that's not that's just showing your wealth you know mm -hmm. and like my family we were upper middle class but we lived middle class. We lived below our means. Always live below your means is what I was and taught. Padding and stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. But yeah, I'm just curious. How did you, what was the relationship with money in your family growing up? Well, probably the best lesson I ever learned uh, with money happened in 1988 when I was traveling to Argentina, where my family's from. And Argentina has been an economic basket case for over 100 years. And it really has to do with just you know, how, how, how in 1900, Argentina was the richest country in the world. And today it's one of the worst countries, worst economies in the world. They can't figure it all out. You know, they, they have a failed democracy and, but they're still surviving, which is the strangest thing. And it was in 1988 when I flew to Argentina for the very first time, I was 14 years old. And my parents by this time were already separated and divorced. And my we went to the airport and my, f my mother says to my father, give your son money so he has to spend in Argentina. And my father uh, pulled out of his wallet a $50 bill, which, you know, $50 bills are not necessarily, they're not as circulated as much as a hundred or a 20, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And my, I was going for three months to Argentina during this, their, uh, our summers, their winter. So June, July, oh. and August. Mm -hmm. First of all, my mom calls my dad a cheapskate. He says, how, how can you only give him $50? She said, listen to me. Don't spend that money until the week before you get back. I said, when you get to Argentina, you give your aunt that money. Go put it away okay. and don't spend it until the week before you leave. Argentina mm -hmm. was going through hyperinflation at the time. Oh, so not a lesson oh, in savings, no. but a lesson in money changing. So currencies. the dollar, one dollar to the Argentinian Austral, as it was called then. Now they have the Argentinian peso. Yeah, oh, and it just became literally in three many, months, many, many more over the. It it just quadrupled in value wow. over a very long time. Yeah, and the week before I left, I was able to buy a ton of stuff. I had to bring another suitcase. With me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. Your money was fifty dollars increasing me in value and increasing in value every day exponentially wow. because that's hyperinflation. And that was my first yeah, lesson in inflation. That's a scary thing. And when I went back to Argentina with my father in two thousand seven, uh, the same thing. I couldn't believe what one dollar could buy you in Argentina. I mean, nine dollars. We were with a bottle of uh -huh. wine, a steak, dinner. Uh, dessert and you know for nine bucks yeah I mean, it was like it was insane so I guess countries that have gone through hyperinflation probably have a different relationship with money maybe they're less likely to have debt or Germany something like that, do you Germany think? is probably the best example of, of a country going through a major hyperinflation because it's in, in the, the memory of the people who are in government well yeah. and you, the reason why Germany went through such a hyperinflation in the early 1920s was because of the reparations they had to pay back after World War one yeah uh, you know the you know 
the agreements that they had to, uh, oh. you know, with England and France and, and, and all the um, allied powers, I mean, they literally drained Germany of oh, all so of its Oh, so part of losing the war is that you end up in debt. They had to pay back all re- war reparations to all those countries. So then you print more money to pay it back, and, and then it becomes uh. more inflated. Yeah. So, so you basically destroy your money to pay everyone back. Exactly. And then start over or okay. something. And that's where the Allies failed, is that they set up Germany for failure, which caused the rise oh. of, of fascism mm. later on in its history. Wow. So if, you could, years, so if you could rewind time, you would have said that it was a, you would have let them not pay debt or something like that? I wouldn't have been so harsh. Okay. Mm. I wouldn't have been so harsh. And it's going to be- very, you want them to pay something for starting a war. World War One was very expensive. And, you know, literally the, the allies forced Germany to pay um, the cost back. And, and, and literally they had to divide Germany. I mean, the French uh, took over part of Germany, the industrial heartland. Everything that the Germans produced as far as industry had to go to the French. I mean, it was, it was set up for failure. Mm. And, and that's unfortunately the, what caused the rise of, of Adolf Hitler and fascism. And, and it was literally caused World War II. Because we're going through some inflation in America, but you wouldn't call it hyperinflation until it hits some number where it's we're not out of control, I guess. Interesting that, that point. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, we're doing a project in Alaska, an art project with an, a local artist, and we're going up there. And we began doing the calculations for the material costs. And we realized that our budget from the previous year does not match what, what the costs are today. And Ooh. so there has been a considerable increase in material costs and travel expenses and things like that and he asks me he said because this is a public art project and the the budget is finite you know you cannot go over a budget uh, especially for a government project and he asked me says is there any way we can increase this i said there's no way and he says there's no precedent and i said not since i was born in 1974 have we had a similar inflationary episode Wow. I mean, and not in my lifetime. I mean, I was a baby when, when the last time we had inflation is like, like yeah. this. One of the challenges that I think, you know, when you look at money historically from the time the Egyptians were using pieces of gold and silver, I mean, there's, there's a finite amount of this precious material metal out there. And it's the perfect money. It's, it's, it's real money that can be exchanged. It's fungible. It's, it's divisible. It's, you can, you know, gold in one place is the same amount. Oh, and it's immune place. from inflation because you can't you dig it up any, it. unless you start digging it up faster and faster or with you technology. De- or you debase the currency. So Which what, is what we did. We, we've debased it, absolutely, yeah. by printing more or not having enough gold in reserves. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the French who called this out back in the 1960s. But ultimately, I mean, the Romans started debasing their currency by, by putting copper inside of the gold. Hmm. And they could produce more coins for the finite amount of gold that existed. Uh, oh, yeah, because I was going to say, why would they do that? Because it ruins their currency. But obviously, they do it because it's more money for without the work. Right. And there's like, who always, doesn't want to be able to spend more than they have? Well, and the Romans, the way the Romans, for Rome to maintain the empire, they had to continue, they had to continue their conquest so mm. that they could get more, more land, more nations, more gold, and, you know, pay everyone had to pay a tribute to the capital, mm. which was Rome, right? Yeah. So it, it was very interesting to see 
how you know you look at other cultures and how they've based their currency it happened with the greeks it happened with the romans it happened with has it ever happened without war being the paying for war being the primary reason wars are inflationary they're very but if you can stay at a war do you not ever inflate your money to death gold actually keeps you from making war because there's only so much gold out there statement got the gold bug yeah Okay. okay So, so you think we might not have gone to Iraq if America had stayed on the gold standard? Or Vietnam? Or the oh, space race? Wow. Or, the space race was definitely good, not though, right? I mean, too. think of the, if you look at because, yeah, what was happening yeah. in the 1950s and 60s. So Bretton Woods is a perfect example. Why did Bretton Woods happen in 1944? The rest of the world was broke. We were the, now the superpower. We won the war with our help. I mean, the Russians, when we look at the Russians and how they celebrate on, on June 9th, you know, the, the history of them winning over the Nazis, it was thanks to the Americans sending them supplies through Murmansk. You know, there was part of this, this whole war effort. The U.S. was not being attacked. We were being mm. attacked in other areas, but the mainland was not being attacked. Right. And so we, we, our government literally said everyone is going to be part of the war effort. Women are going to get into the factories. Men are going to go fight. You know, they got everyone involved. And our war effort put the entire country on a war footing. Mm. So by 1944, we had to figure out what the world monetary system was going to be like. And so they went mm. to Brenton Woods. They all met. Brenton Woods is a meeting. It's a meeting in Brenton Woods, Connecticut. And it's also a document. Or it was a, it's it was an a agreement. It's an agreement. It was an agreement. So, okay. so it's like the, a peace treaty or something, but includes, or it's it, just an agreement about money. It was a way of getting um, all the countries to send the United States their gold. The United States would then reimburse those countries with dollars. So they would use, the U.S. would hold the gold. Hmm. We would produce enough dollars so that there would be the convertibility of gold to dollars. Right. The problem is that we began printing more dollars than there was gold at Fort Knox. Right. Okay. And we began, all the countries that gave us their gold for us to hold. It's just so tempting, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's and, just and, to like be like, oh, it's the in French, the vault. Here's some it more was, It was the French they that, that out. figured out, said, wait a minute. How are you guys having the great, you know, society of the 1960s, the the space race against Russia, the war in Vietnam? They're trying to piece we that were, together. It, and the French were the ones who said, look, we're going to come and get our gold. And so they sent two battleships to New York Harbor and they got their gold back. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. I mean, they, they, we, they, let, they, we, we let them fly to or sail two battleships into oh, well, the harbor. I mean, because we're friendly. <laughs> no, it with was them. all planned out. The French were going to attack us. Well, I mean, well, you know, I know, but we're just saying, but just to come get their gold. Yeah, because yeah. you, you don't just we want it, our gold obviously. back. They said we want our gold back. I thought you just put it in a plane or something, but yeah. And you know, that <laughs> that's was, a good way. No, it's a good way to move gold. I guess that much gold <laughs> is a warship. Yeah. Well, and you need a warship that can hold all that yeah. gold, right? Because gold is heavy; it's dense. Yeah, you're right. You don't just fly it. And again, did we give it to? Did they get it all from us? They did absolutely they came and got it you know and it was interesting about the french during world war ii they shipped all their gold to canada really and the british were upset they were like no 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 you need to use that to buy arms and all that they were like well we've already been invaded by the nazis we need you know that money 
mm-hmm. to rebuild our country after the war. Smart. That is smart. Oh. So they were they were very very smart about you know uh, their their use of gold. Dude, that's also, yeah. something very interesting about the French and something quite valuable was when the Nazis showed up in Paris and they went to the Louvre, and they noticed all the paintings were gone, all the art was gone, mm-hmm. and the French had they left all the frames. <laughs> but all the artwork was gone and so Mm. you know the french knew they said okay we can't fight the nazis we we know they're going to come and take over most of the country Mm -hmm. but what can we do to sustain our culture after that okay let's ship our our gold to canada let's put our art away and let's do an underground resistance and that's the thing that they were able to do what about india i know they have like a really interesting relationship with gold as well the indians are the largest buyers of gold in the world and for them it's 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 deeply rooted in their culture and very similar to the Chinese. Mm -hmm. They give gold away as a gift during weddings. So that's very, very important. Even there's even interesting programs, even the poorest in India will, you know, save up money so that they can buy even fractional pieces of gold so that they have it available for the weddings and for special events. And wow. it's part of the dowries. A lot of times, you know, gold is part of a dowry mm-hmm. for um, for the brides. Right. And can you use that as a currency there, though? Like, could you just go to, you yeah, know, the a- car dealership and be like, oh, I have three pieces of gold? Or do you, do they have to convert it into their... They have to convert it. Okay. But there are, there's a, there's, there's a very famous temple in India that they claim, or it has been made a claim that there is... Uh, more gold in this temple than any other temple in the world, and it's because it's 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 given as a gift and homage to you know the the, the hundreds of thousands of, of gods that they have. Okay. And so the Indians have a very very uh, very special close relationship with gold, and and mm-hmm. you know a lot of people you'll see you know Indians you know when they come and visit Las Vegas and they wear a gold that's very yellow, not <laughs> like Americans that we buy you know fourteen or How eighteen. How is it yellow? <laughs> what makes it more yellow? It's the pure. It's more the, pure. The more, okay. really? the more pure the gold. It's softer too, I would imagine. And more soft. Yeah. yeah. Twenty-two karat gold is about the most you want to wear. Yeah. Um, because it's very, break. very soft. Um, also, there's the Golden Temple in Amritsar, uh, in India, very famous temple, very sacred space for the for the, um, uh, the Sikh, and so. Mm. You know, again, very, uh, very close relationship. They love their gold and they wear it well. And so, when you when you go to weddings, Indian weddings, or you see them, a lot of Indian visitors. Interestingly enough, India is one of our largest trading partners with the state of Nevada. Oh, I didn't um, really. Our largest trading partner is Switzerland. Yep. Who would have thought? Oh, yeah. And for ask me why. Watches or something? I don't why? know. Nevada oh. is the largest producer of gold in the United States. Oh, oh interesting. Yeah, I know we had the, the silver state or something. I know we we had are the, the silver, silver state. Yeah. But I didn't know we were the gold state. We're the golden state too. You look at gold through the eyes of the, the Incan Empire, for instance. Uh, gold were seen was seen as, or and still is, uh, it, to a certain segment of the cultures that still exists mm-hmm. down there, uh, is seen as the rays of the sun. And so it's, it's sacred at that point. And the, when the supreme... Inca, who was the, you know, in that, in that case would have been Atahualpa. Atahualpa was the last of uh, Incan kings, and he was known as the Inca. And the Inca, he owned all the gold. You know, all the gold that existed in the Incan Empire was under his purview. Wow. Now, you could use it, 
you know, they but they didn't really use it as a currency. They used it at, for sacred purposes. Yeah. It wasn't until the Spanish arrived that they saw, um, especially Hernán Cortés, when he arrived in, in Tenochtitlan in, in central Mexico, uh, that... You know, he saw all the gold and saw all the silver. And the same thing with um, Pizarro when he arrived in Camarca, which is where the great battle happened between the Spanish. I mean, 300 Spanish soldiers against 60,000 Incan you know, soldiers. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there's, they went, they, Pizarro said, I want the gold. And so Atahualpa gave him, uh, you know, he filled two rooms. As the annals are said, they filled two rooms with gold and one room, or two one room with gold and two rooms with silver, but you know as a ransom to save his life, mm -hmm. and they still killed him. The amount of gold and silver they were pulling out of of, of the Americas, you know, was so inflationary in Europe. They flooded the European market with so much oh, gold because they just never wow. anticipated the market never anticipated digging up that much. So then when it showed up from another country. Well, and, and messed the, with their economy's and balance. And right? something that isn't understood a lot. Now, you know, people like me, you, we read a lot. I mean, we're constant. You know, anthropologists are constantly digging and finding and, and, and trying to figure out what makes a, a culture tick. Mm. And what, what was Spain like in 1492 when Columbus sailed uh, west? You know, they were just ending, wrapping up the the re reconquista the reconquest of spain so they were battle hardened they were kicking the moors and the jews out of of spain and let me tell you you know when they told the the, the moors which were the muslims and the jews they said you either convert to catholicism and this was during the, the inquisition and they said you either convert to catholicism or you leave oh and by the way you can't take anything with you so they put them in boats and they crossed over to North Africa, okay. Morocco, yeah. what is now Morocco. Okay. And so the, the Spanish were pretty brutal. And so yeah, what they did terrible. to the Jews and to the Muslims and other non-Catholics, because remember, at that time, Queen Isabella of, of uh, Castile and uh, King Ferdinand of Aragon married. They were known as the Catholic monarchs of Spain. They got married and you know, as a united force to reconquer the Iberian Peninsula for the Catholic Church. Okay. And so, you know, and they did it with the Inquisition. So you had the, the church encouraging this. And if you're not Christian, you were screwed royally. You literally, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what, 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 what are they going to do? They're going to send Christopher Columbus, who isn't even Spanish, he was Italian. Oh. And they were going to send him. And, you know, they're going to rape, they're going to destroy, they're going to steal. And everything that the Spanish did to the Jews and the Muslims in Spain, they did to the Native Americans. And they, they did it to Atahualpa in the Incan Empire, and they did it to um, Moctezuma II in, in uh, Tenochtitlan. And they continued doing it, you know, and, and continued raping the land, you know, stealing from, from the natives just so that they could, you know, have their empire. And the Portuguese did it, and so and, and Europe just did that because they knew there was a lot of treasures out there. Mm. And the reality is, again, now we're going to look at historically, you know, there was the Silk Road, and the Silk Road was we all was this connection between the Roman Empire and the Han Chinese, 
And it wasn't until the rise of the Ottoman Empire that they shut down the Silk Road and the Europeans had to find a way to the east. And so Christopher Columbus goes to Queen Isabella and, and King Ferdinand and said, if we'd go west, instead of attempting to go around Africa, which was really pretty much controlled by right. either the Dutch or the Portuguese, and then, mm -hmm. you know, if we go west, maybe we have a quicker route. What they didn't know is they would run into an entire new continent. Mm, right, right. <laughs> the Nuevo Mundo, the New World, right? Yeah. And we have, uh, you know, that, that, again, Europeans' relationship with, with, with money. Yep. And it was oh. what was sacred to Native Americans uh, was really uh. used for war among the Europeans. Well, since territories now don't change quite as much as they did in the early days, because we have just a kind of more connected world, does that mean currencies are safer or more stable? We, or is that the wrong way to look at stability? It's does it a, mean we're not going to discover a new world on accident anymore? It's true. Unless you mine an asteroid, though, which which could, is could throw, very, which is gonna throw something off, yeah. You know, we're finding I, new currencies all the time. Still, I feel. I mean, we, cryptocurrency. Yeah, you know, that's kind of like and inventing. We're them. just inventing. Oh, you're things. right. No, this is a dumb that's, question because obviously the world's gonna fluctuate. I feel like we're, I'm so curious to see what we'll invent in like yeah. another hundred years. Like, what will be the new currency? Because you're so right. Then. If we can invent Ashley coin, and there can yeah. be a million of them, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they're added to an economy where you trade them with dollars, it's yeah. just the same as finding a new country. Right, because it's just what someone places thing. value on. Like, yeah. it's just, it just happened to be gold or it just happened to be like, there's a lot of other finite things in no. the world, you know? Yeah, in fact, exac exactly the opposite, probably. Now that I think about it, we can now even easier come across new forms of money. I, yeah. I think the rise of Bitcoin in 2011 was Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper. And whoever this individual is, he, she, or they, you know, because you, we don't right, know we exactly don't know. Yeah. who this person is, right? Yeah. Or people. Mm. It's very elegant what they were attempting to do. Because the gold and silver market is manipulated. There is more gold and silver paper traded on the Forex, not Forex, um, Comex or other exchanges, especially out of London or Shanghai, mm -hmm. than exists that have ever been mined. Oh, this has the same problem with the French saying, America, you don't have it all. Here's a warship, fill it <laughs> yeah. up. Exactly. If everybody exactly. said, hey, I'm, I've got some we, paper. It's kind of like here. it'd be like a rush on the banks of gold. It'd be like, does it all exist? Is it all here? The United States has eight tons, eight metric tons of, of gold. And, and it's the largest reserve of gold in the world. Now, it's, it's for the amount of dollars that have been printed, gold should be considerably higher than $2,000 an ounce. It's a matter of valuation, right? right. So we, there, people say there's not enough gold for all the money that's been printed. Yeah, it is. There absolutely is enough gold. We it just need to the raise price. the price. Yeah. yeah. Ah, okay. that Bitcoin seems to be where gold should be. And oh, Bitcoin really? is not manipulated. It can't be manipulated. It At least is the we, value so, people, it is the value of it being bought and sold that yeah. creates its value, right? You think and it's, be a, it's, yeah. it's finite amount. So there's only, what, 27 million Bitcoin, right? And Bitcoin was, let's say, what, it started off at $2, $2. a coin, maybe a little bit less, and now it's at 30,000, 35,000. And all of a sudden, we started printing more money, and Bitcoin started shooting up. Oh, because it's maybe more accurately being reflected in the... Absolutely, because it's not being manipulated. Doesn't mean it's stable. I think there's a difference between being stable and being. Related. Oh, for sure. You know, 
and and it would be interesting if they tagged gold to the value of Bitcoin. That would be really interesting. Oh. There was an interesting thing that happened in 1933, you know, during the Great Depression, where the United States confiscated gold. So no one could hold gold bullion, could hold unless they were, you know, like collectible coins and stuff okay. like that. And it was, and then they pa- they pegged the dollar. Uh, one ounce to 27 or 41 dollars an ounce at that time with gold to stabilize the markets because we were on a quasi gold standard uh and then in 1971 you know nixon took us off off the the gold standard you know because he and he claimed it, it was called the nixon shock and basically he was claiming uh, you know, you know, we have to get ahead of the manipulators. This is only temporary. And in reality, all they did was replaced the, you know, the gold, you know, the, the gold-backed dollar, okay, with oil. The petrodollar? The petrodollar. Oh, okay. And the way they, that Henry Kissinger did, or it was Henry Kissinger and a few others. I mean, I know it's going to sound a little conspiratorial, but you can actually look all this up, is... They probably were having a conversation. Well, why don't we just require trade in oil that has to happen in dollars? Oh, and that's what okay. keeps everybody using the dollar. Well, the problem some is kind of balanced commodity to it. It became a challenge for the United States when we started waging war in the Middle East with Iraq, because Iraq originally wanted they they said why should we trade you know our oil with for dollars when we yeah. could do it with euros and then all of a sudden we invade iraq oh mm-hmm. or yeah. libya who wanted to trade it with their their oil with gold i mean this is our historical things that right. these are yeah. conversations that people are not are not having and it really comes down to how we use the dollar and how we use the dollar to control other nations that don't necessarily fit within our cultural context of democracy. Right. And do you think right. you think Putin understands this and has an idea of how to counter or work against or work with or Vladimir Putin's a very smart man. He began you know lowering Russia's debt, began buying gold and held 700 billion in foreign reserves. What he didn't expect was when he invaded Ukraine, number one, that Europe would be united as much as they did, that NATO would automatically expand by two more countries. You know, I mean, there's some issues with Turkey right now because of issues with Sweden and, and Finland joining NATO and stuff like that, but that all be all worked out. What the risk that the United States did, and this has really raised the eyebrows of a lot of countries around the world, and if you look at the votes in the UN and how many countries abstained is shocking because now we've weaponized the dollar. We will not allow Russia to use dollars, period. That's right, yeah. And, we're the, and we're the reserve currency of the world. Yeah. And so this may be the United States' last hurrah. What, what happens next? Using our currency as a weapon, you know, even though we've done it before, but not this extreme mm-hmm. it kind of erodes you know? some trust in it if we weaponize it and that's the thing because our money is based on trust yeah you know it's you know the full faith and credit of the united states i could see any other country being like well if they did it to them 
you could do it to us, you know. It's and, and China's the, the big one. I would think China, And yeah. that's why the Chinese, uh, not China, 10, 15 years ago, they began encouraging their, their population to buy gold. Really? Because the Chinese, and so the Chinese love buying gold. Gold is part of their culture. Mm-hmm. It's shiny. It's beautiful. It's religious. It's spiritual. Yeah. It, you know, it puts them closer to their their gods. You know, it's it's really, and this is, you know, gold around the world has been the the the, the metal of the gods because it resembles the sun. The sun is the giver of life. We've gotten so that. far from that in in America, like for. I don't know, personally, as like a female, I'm like, oh, silver or gold. Like, oh, I guess I'll just match my gold to my gold today. That's literally the only relationship <laughs> I have with it. You don't it's have like, a spiritual moment spirit, with it every, every day like, before no, you come to work. Not, yeah, there's nothing. Sp- and I love silver. I wear a lot of silver. I know, you couldn't be more opposite. So, like, because yeah. that's probably what Normally I'm I wear silver. About I, I do like this podcast, you know. So. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's, oh, nice. there's a great saying, gold is the money of kings. Silver is the money gentlemen. Uh, debt is the money of the poor. It is a weird thought because, mm. I mean, it's the gold atoms are probably the same ones. They've just been melted down and stuff and passed through. Oh, yeah. That would be so interesting so to see many where gold years. was. Like, yeah. like, where, what was it part of like a thousand years ago? Sure. It, and, yeah. It, some of those gold atoms might have been like on a crown or the, something yeah, in know. some other part of the world. And it moves around the world so much that yeah. you never really know where. where it was mined from would be really yeah. interesting. And it merges together and yeah. stuff. All but of the, the gold that's ever like, been mined is still in circulation, with the exception of some of the stuff that fell in, you know, sunk. That's still somewhere in the world. We'll dig it up later. Yeah. You know, and some of the, look, there's a, a mine in South Africa. I mean, they have four kilometers down. Oh, my gosh. Just to find this. Or there's boat. Have you heard there's like boats that have sank and then the money is like, you know, like as they traveled across the. the there's, is that like World War II or something? Like where the submarines were destroying a lot of gold as it traveled? Well, there's the the rumor, or the that uh, several two submarines. Well, there two two Nazi submarines or two German submarines ended up in Argentina, right after the war, and they believe that they were laden with 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 German gold, you know, wow. escaping to South America. Wow. Uh, there is also the very famous case uh, of the Santa Maria de Atocha, which was a Spanish galleon that sank off the coast of Florida. And, you know, they had to, the federal government got some of the money, Spain got some of the money uh, because it was part of their property, you know, and then the guys that found the the Spanish galleon, you know, they got some of it. Yeah, you think they get a little bit of it. You know, so, you know, and there was confiscations. As a matter of fact, there was another um, famous ship that sank also that the Spanish... Uh, you know, they were demanding the gold back and the Peruvian government got involved and they lost the case. And the only reason why the Spanish won it was because they, uh, the federal government, the U.S. federal government said, you can have the ship and the gold back, but we want a certain painting to be returned. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, you have to look Good it up. Order. It's really interesting how, how gold still plays a very important role. We unfortunately Americans have lost the understanding of hmm. the value of gold and silver. So you want to see Joe Biden up there being like, "Got a gold ring." I encourage all Americans <laughs> yeah. to start Make like have, I have a gold toilet if now. And- if I don't give out financial advice. I can't. I'm an anthropologist. I look at it through the eyes of of, of that. Yeah. Uh, but you know, with silver at twenty two dollars an ounce, 
be like a start buying deal. yeah you know, <laughs> it's a great deal so it's coming about compensate confiscation kind of made me think about um the russian oligarchs and i was sort of hearing these things that like they've been taking yachts from them do yeah. you and i also don't totally understand what what makes an oligarch different from just like a super rich american like is bill gates kind of an american oligarch or is it because that's separate from how russia just functions as a society but I'm just curious about sanctions and Russia and oligarchs and any thoughts you have on the relationship to money and how those all fit together. You know, it's, it's really interesting. The Russians historically have always looked at their, their society through the lens of, of, of two types of people. Mm. You had the czar and the, aristoc and the aristocracy, okay? And then you had the serfs. And the serfs were everybody else. And, and I know it's a very touchy subject right now, but Russians, the, the Russian elite, the Russian, the way the Russian ran themselves as, as, a, as a government and the relationship between their government, whether it was Tsarist, Soviet, or Putin today, they, they see their population as expendable. Whether they were serfs, you know, or slaves, basically, if you were a serf and you worked for a landowner, you could not, you, you were indentured to them in perpetuity. There was, if you had a child and they were born on that land, they had to work for that landowner. They couldn't leave. There was no mobility. Wow. Um, they had, yeah, yeah. among the, the caste system in India, at least there was, you had you knew where you were at, but there were multiple instead of just right. yeah, instead just, of just the binary two, right? Of, yeah. uh, what ended up happening and why we had the rise of the oligarchs is these individuals were the ones who were running Soviet industries and they were able to... Oh, gotcha, because it was government-owned. They were government-owned and they were the Hello. ones right. who were able to... So it's like a telecom or something, government builds it, then gives and it to a certain group a of people of, and all of a sudden it's never... Free market and in, a lot of the nature. oligarchs were already getting rich off of the Russian industries because they were skimming off money from the state. Okay. And so who were the ones in Russia could afford to buy these industries? The people that were already running them and know. making money. And, the, and, and, oh, and looking at what's happening in Russia, you know, Russia should be the richest country in the world. But the distribution of wealth is so it's so lopsided yeah. wow you know not good for like growth no i worry about it all the know? time yeah no i mean they they the oligarchs are, are it's it's almost beyond like you know, oh for sure filthy rich yeah you know and so they have an enormous amount of of money because a lot of it's been skimmed from corruption i mean you would wow. I, we i grew up during the cold war and we always grew up understanding that russia you know had e their military was equal if not better than ours mm -hmm. and then we see the invasion of of the ukraine and we see how uh russia has failed and that's because what sure vladimir putin wanted to modernize his military and we were under the 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 idea that he was doing that but what we failed to look at was the corruption within both the military and the Russian military industrial complex and the amount of money that was being siphoned off for what should mm. have gone to, you know, research and development yeah. of great military so, although equipment. It, although it's probably mm. nearly impossible, would you say the best thing Putin could do or the lead, uh, future leader of Russia would be to somehow 
compensate from the oligarchs like 90 percent of their wealth and somehow redistribute it or is that just not or you just i don't know the the thing not that that would actually happen but the thing with (laughs) russia if you you look at the history of russia over the last 800 years um it's going to be very they've never had democracy they don't know what that is they you know they've always had very strong uh you know soviet uh, heritage autocratic You know, whether it was czarist, Soviet, or the current in- incarnation of the Russian government, it's basically the same. It's like, yeah. it's like you know, it's you can't lipstick just change on a pig. something like that and expect a culture to actually change if the people right. grew up differently. Exactly. Yeah. They're, they're, I mean, they're not, the Russians aren't serfs today, right. per se, but look, they can't protest. That inequality is still there. Inequality is huge. I mean, the, the wealth gap between mm. the oligarchs and, and the population. And, and again, it's their relationship with money. Um, corruption is very common in that culture. It's just yeah. the way it is. I mean, you know, we look at Tsar um, Nicholas, you know, and the history of, of, you know, the Romanovs and their relationship with money and how they, um, you know, they, how they worked within the system of the aristocracy and how the aristocracy worked with, um, with the Tsars. And, and we look at the, the French Revolution as well. It's, it's a perfect example of, of yeah. you know, the aristocracy in France could not work, and they didn't pay taxes. Hmm. Well, what, what if we don't look at it in terms of, like, confiscate from the rich and give to the poor, but more in terms of, like, a debt jubilee or something that would be uh, kind of a, a reset where people can start on equal footing every once in a while? I know you had something... Yeah, I related think related to the Bible that there, might, or like a historical thing. If we look at it, um, you know, for instance, among Muslims, we, let look at look at Turkey, for example. You know, Turkey's having a type of hyperinflation, right? The way we 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 kind of control inflation is by raising interest rates. But if if you're using islamic law or sharia law to try to you know say we can't raise interest rates because that's against sharia law because that's how um, president erdogan of turkey sees it you know that's great but it doesn't work in an economic sense because it's never been tested or it has been tested but it doesn't work we all know the way we control inflation is by raising interest rates right because that helps increase the value of that currency uh, and, you know, we, we, we raised interest rates in the United States by half a percentage point to try to slow down the economy. It was overheating and inflation's through the roof. And so, you know, recessions are normal. Uh, in the Bible, in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 25, it talks about a, you know, there's a, a, a series of things that are commanded a recommendation such as you know leaving the land fallow for a year for seven years after seven years you leave the land fallow and you kind of take a respite after you know every seven years this is seven year cycle and on the 49th year is a jubilee year where all debts are forgiven land is returned slaves are freed wow. and you know this we don't know if that ever happened but there are other societies that have had similar things. And I think at this point in society, especially after the pandemic, with enormous amount of money printing that has occurred, not just in the United States, but globally, inflation is going to be through the roof, of course. Plus there's supply chain issues, right? Right. 
Uh, so looking at what President Biden is attempting to do uh, for college students, that could be seen as a type of debt jubilee. Okay. Um, what would have been, it would have been cheaper for us to bail out uh, mortgages during the 2008, oh, 2009, yeah. okay, instead of bailing out the banks. Right. You, I haven't, but that, and that, that's a whole kind of makes thing. my blood um, boil. Cause wouldn't that have been, is that wrong? It, it would feels been, wrong. It feels wrong because we're, our society says, if we're going to take out debt, we pay that debt back or we, we have a, the instrument of chapter seven, chapter yeah. 11 or chapter 13 yeah, bankruptcy. Yeah, kind of that trust away too, because if you don't, if you aren't going to be held to your debts, then I would see people going into more debt just because they there's no guarantee that they'll actually have to pay it back. Right. So you know? they might take on more than so it's kind of like, well, I might not actually have to pay it back. So, you know, you know, I'll just, and there's a control in that yeah. as far as our contractual obligations as seen through law. Yes. Right. So our society is based on laws, mm -hmm. right. You know, and, and a legal framework. That's why we make it difficult to declare bankruptcy. It's not something that is, is, is easy and you can only do it once every 10 years. So, you know, we hope that when mm. you declare bankruptcy, it's a lesson, right? Right. Even though, you know, the wealthy seem to do this quite often yeah. through their businesses and stuff like right. that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Donald Trump has declared bankruptcy many times. So, again, our relationship with money is contractual. Because when you look at a dollar bill, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a contract, mm. you know? Oh, yeah. Is, yeah. our, so is the American relationship with debt similar or different than that of other countries? Like, are we more or less comfortable with being in personal debt than, say, like France or Germany or, or India, say? Well, the Germans are debt averse. Okay. So they don't, they don't like debt, huh. you know, and that's because of their past experience, both by starting two world wars yeah, that makes sense. and the, and the, <laughs> sure. the hyperinflation right now, yeah. of the yeah. early 1920s. Right. Uh, you know, Europe, it's, it's an interest. Europe has been through so much, you know, throughout their history. So what happened with this invasion of, of, of Ukraine is a shock to the system because they're like, wait a minute, we're in the 21st century and this is happening now. <laughs> and so we, you know, all of a sudden now Germany is going to invest 100 billion euros into their military. Unheard of six months ago. They're right. in there because the Germans are very, they were bombed into submission. Same thing with the Japanese. Yeah. And now the Japanese are seeing this, the rise of totalitarian regimes, such as in China or, or in Russia and other countries, mm -hmm. and, and they're afraid. So the, the democracies of the world are coming together. But we have some headwinds, and our headwinds are the huge amount of debt that's out there. You know, if you, if there's, there's a guy that I follow very closely. His name is Mike Maloney. And he has done a great series of, of uh, videos on the history of money and debt. And he talks and he has brought uh, several poor people like, um, you know, David Morgan. And uh, there's all the, all the people yeah, here. This <laughs> pile of books here. this pile of books that you brought. And yeah. he mentions how we printed so much money, but we've exported our inflation. Oh, yeah. Okay. So when the U.S. economy is doing well, there's economic disruptions in around the world, you know, because other countries are taking out debt in dollars 
and they're trying to pay back that debt in their own currency, which is losing value. Right. So we've exported our debt. Well, guess what? Or we exported our inflation. We can't do that anymore because the entire global monetary system has been inflated because literally the world uh -huh. stopped working oh. for months. Yeah. But we were immune to hyperinflation because they used to buy our debt. I don't think we're, we're immune. Or we to used to be as long as people were buying our debt. Or we'd be the last ones to hyperinflate if, since everyone else would go first. If the if the world stopped using dollars, all those dollars would be coming back this way oh, and you will see a hyperinflation. Wow. Yeah. And then enough. that will be, you know, the end of the that'll be the end game. And that'll but change think, our relationship with money. Not having the US dollar will definitely change our relationship. You know, it's no different. What would than, we do? We'd move to a digital currency or issue a new like what would happen if the, the US cool. dollar just hyperinflated? Like from a cultural perspective, would it Americans would. Like, I mean, we wouldn't just take the yuan or something. So what would we, we just make a new currency and start over? I don't know. Would, would we go to a, a, a or just world take Canada, currency? Just like take Canada's gold, gold dollar standard. or something and just share it? And you know, say that every currency has like a expiration. Like there's no currency that lasts forever. Um, no, the average age gold, of... A, yeah, that's why you were talking gold, huh? The average time frame of a currency is about 50 years. That's it. And what? no currency that's happened. For, for, that's all the little countries, though. That's everybody. Oh. If I you, guess if that's the average you said? If you look at, you know, that's the, the the Spanish real, the, <laughs> you're the, totally the Dutch just, gilder, just fat you the British right. pound, yeah. the American, you know, we're at, from 1971 to today, mm. what are 51 years? How long is, wait, we've had yeah, our so dollars. Euro. Isn't that one somewhat new? It's the new Euro's one? the new one. Yeah, we should just Euro's go to the Euro. Yeah. Or the Yuan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think, and it goes back traditional for the Europeans, you know, it's a topic of, it's taboo, you know, mm. it, it, money's not. Yeah, where is it taboo and where is it not? The British hate yeah. talking about money. They find it to really? be classless. They don't, yeah. they don't like talking about it. Oh. It's a thing with them. It's, you know, whereas. You think America that's bad? Should the government try to do PSAs and be like, hey, you guys should talk about money and make it more part of no, our... No, I don't know about that. <laughs> like, wouldn't it help the country, though, if people talked about it? Yeah, is it a benefit? Uh, I would think it'd be benefit, net benefit. Think so? Honestly, yeah. yeah. I think what we need to do... We, so, though Americans are very comfortable talking about money. Yeah. You know, I think we need to have a more in-depth conversation with our children yes. and the next generation. Economics should be a class in kindergarten. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah sure. I don't know why it wouldn't be. Teaching yeah. children about money. No, it's true. Not in high school, but at uh, from the youngest age. Do you think the average adult American understands less about finance than average adults in other countries? I think Americans as individuals understand money more than, let's say, our government. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, uh, we you got know. it. Um, yeah. And there's a movement. But you're right, there's kids. a movement across, uh, you know, in some states uh, that yeah. you know are making gold. You know, currency. well, and I'm starting yeah. to find a lot of stuff on YouTube that I don't think I would have come across. That's younger the best and part. Like, yeah, yeah, that I've, knowledge share. I've always loved coin. Mm. My dad was the big stamp collector in the family, and I became the <laughs> coin collector in the family. And I like silver coins, and I love gold coins. I don't have you know, gold coins anymore. I have 
more silver than anything else. Okay. Um, and I like the shininess. I like the, the realness of, of, of silver. I mean, the, you know, way, the weight so is amazing. The weight, it's just, yeah, because I just, anything that's small, just, that it's heavy shiny, is sort it's of pretty, old, yeah. Um, but what's really heartwarming, especially for someone my age, uh, who understands money, who understands the difference between money and currency, and understands the value, the historic value of gold and silver and copper, right? Yep. Is to hear the younger generation, like like yourselves, talking about you know whether it's cryptocurrency, talking about gold, talking about silver. Seeing more of that, seeing more of the chatter on YouTube and on Instagram and, and you know, Twitch yeah. and all that. Yeah. Yeah, that you are know, too complicated for the market mechanisms to effectively balance, right? Is yeah, that what yeah. happens? That's what it feels like. And, There's and just it, too many layers and signals that are, I don't know, um, not really helping and it, it, establish a baseline. But it's also created things like Bernie Madoff, what yeah. he did. Oh. Yeah. You know, and well, when you said Enron, it's like they were energy trading. It's like they were inventing a whole new way to, I don't know, to trade energy because it was always done by the state. So you deregulate it and they're like, oh, here's this whole arbitrage opportunity yeah. between how much electricity costs in different country or different states. And then we can instantly transfer it. And they were, it's a, it's such a weird they were thing cooking to like, the books yeah. and they were hiding all of their debt in yeah, and that's all, the real these, story, but yeah. all these little, um, you know, off companies all these little offshoots that they right. were creating and so on paper they looked great and the people that were making money were all the the 200 mm. executives yeah we're getting yeah. these huge bonuses and that's not very much different than the oligarchs oh i think oh was, nice that's interesting i think on a smaller scale like when you said like is it better to talk about money i think the more people talk about it and the more like education there is like on a smaller scale i think there'd be less fraud because if there's yeah. more people like understanding how like money works and they won't be you know kind of fooled into thinking like oh if i just give a dollar to this per or more than a dollar thousand dollars to this person i'll get four thousand back dollars back next month mm. and i think the more you understand about money and how it moves and how it you know how it works you're going to be like well that doesn't make right. any sense i'm not going to fall for that you know so i think yeah. the more education there is around it it can only help you know strengthen the the people and not these True. you know pawns yeah. or, or other well in certain and yeah. certain aspects of like understanding the time value of money or just yeah. generally just getting your head around how an ex like a dividend can like exponentially kind yeah. of compound mm. over your lifetime is just worth i mean it's worth its weight in gold like it yeah. just is crazy yeah. right. to right. think about how if you just miss that little piece of information and never take action on it early in your life, you can be in such a different spot when you retire. Sure. Yeah. I think if you buy a coin today, a silver coin, you know, for $22 and keep that silver coin for 30 years, what it would be, what its value would be in comparison to what it was 30 years ago. Right. Yeah. And, could, and to realize inflation could eat away at the inverse of it. If you keep yeah. dollars and they're inflating, they go the other direction. And that's a big reason why silver coins in the 1950s and 60s were disappearing because people knew that the value of the silver in the dimes and quarters, the half dollars, was worth more than what the face value of the coin was. Oh, so oh yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. So, oh, because it's actually made of something, made of something worth more true. than something that it's worth. Right. Yeah. yeah that's so and, odd to think about. Yeah. And so that what was that? That's like it, when you get a penny and it's like a rare pen, and you're like, sweet, it's actually worth more than a penny, but yeah. someone <laughs> used it as a penny, like yeah. than right. it is so this for is a, a dollar. silver dollar. And that used to be something you'd exchange, like a dollar. I can use it. I can go to the store and use this. 
Yeah, so you well, could you could sell problem... it for twenty seven dollars, or you could sell it for one dollar. Right. So it's yeah. worth a dollar. <laughs> it's worth a dollar. Yeah. So I can pay with. Yeah. But. But the person you paid with would instantly swap it, it out for exactly. a dollar. Exactly. <laughs> so the cashier yeah. would see me. I would let's say I had a pocket full of these silver eagles, right? Yeah. I'd go to the store and I would buy, let's say, you know, how much is a, is a Snickers bar? Two dollars and twenty five cents, I think sure. now. A, a big one of the big ones. Sure. And so I would pay with three of these, right? Yeah. And people would look at this like, wait a minute, this is worth more than. It's, that's what happened with yeah. a lot of the silver coinage okay. in the 19th. But we were debasing the currency at that time. Yeah. So people were keeping the silver because it was worth more than yeah, one. I see. Yeah. But it's also illegal to melt them down. So it's almost kind of like, well, there's nothing else you can do with it at the same it's, time. Oh. You, you, it is? It was a type I think of, it's, it's illegal to like. Yeah, but you can't damage the money. You can't right. damage the money. So right. if you, you can't oh, be like, oh, no. oh, I have a bucket so you of would be pennies, like, but it's I so need much, copper. But no. how tempting would that be to just be like, government doesn't know I have it. What did all those people do back then? They hodled. They melted it. They yeah. hodled it. Okay. Oh yeah. So what ended up happening was that when I was in college and getting my bachelor's in 1998, I went to a cafe down on Maryland Park. It was ca called Cafe Copio, and I was, I know the distinct sounds between a, a regular quarter and a silver, or a, a, a quarter that has silver content. It has a very distinct <laughs> sound. Really? <laughs> and I heard. This, and I looked at like the, the cashier and I said, is that silver coins? And they were like, oh, this guy, his grandfather died yeah. and left him all this it's more dense, so it must silver ring money. Right? Right. And, and the kid was like, well, there's just money. So he was paying for it. And oh. so I spoke to the kid. I said, do you have any more of that? He says, I said, I will give you, you know, I'll give you for whatever you have. I'll give you a couple hundred bucks for it. You know, and he says, oh, I have a whole bag of it. And so literally I oh, ended up buying all this silver that's incredible. at face value, uh, you know, and knowing that today I still have that silver. It's worth more than what I paid for. Right. And that was yeah. wow. over 20 years ago. Yeah. I remember when I was working um, as a in retail, I, you know, someone was shopping in the store. She picked out uh, a dress and she's like, oh, it's a gift. Uh, would you mind gift wrapping it for me? And I was like, sure. So when we gift wrap something, we obviously take the price tag off. We wrap it up. We put it in a box, put a bow oh. on it. And so I, I did all of that. And um, she, she was an, an Asian woman. I don't know what country she was from. But so I, I when I took the price tag off, I left it on the counter. Oh. Um, and she's like, did you take that off? I was like, oh, yeah, I did that for you. No worries. She's like, why did you take the price tag off of it? Like, how does the person know how much I paid for it? I was what? like, <laughs> no. yeah. Yeah, man. interesting. Like <laughs> I was like, yep. so like that, it almost like tells you how much you care for that person. Like mm. I paid hundred dollars for this dress. I didn't get you a $50 dress. I got yeah, you a hundred dollar dress. They wanted so it's, it's very like, um, it's, it shows how much they actually cared. And I think in America, we think oh. of like people, you, the, the care or the value of the gift is how much you thought about, that what that means that person right in that culture it's like no it's how much i spent on the gift for you right, so right. That's because so they equate that with the and time and effort to earn the taboo. money very like, taboo if we accidentally leave a price on oh. a gift even if it's a lot how embarrassing is that <laughs> very I, mean, embarrassing. I mean it's like really <laughs> paid five like, dollars we, we have panic attacks have you ever looked at a card like when you buy a card for somebody oh yeah there's always a price on it you can't take that off yeah i always thought no, that was so odd that's the one price you can't take off and it's always a gift on the you know what i mean like it's very and odd some people go as far like, as scratching it off. People scratch it off. Some people scratch it off. I really? I'm like, yeah, no, it's yeah. tacky. I can see why you'd you know. Like and it. that's a t think of it. Yeah. We 
we talk we love to talk about money but when it comes to gifting something and we leave the price that's like the most taboo Mm -hmm. thing but there are cultures out there that you know you expect to leave the price on there what how do you think about time versus money like when you can exchange money for something like grubhub and it saves you time from getting food or employing someone to help you or your time in school that you're spending for like what's your relationship with time i think of it as you know what i would be doing otherwise i guess um my my dad always used to like you know use this kind of example of like how much you're being how much your time is worth essentially like um oh yeah like you could you know go and um like i guess save gas prices like Whenever I, whenever I see people in line to get gas at Costco and the line is incredibly long and I'm thinking how much they're saving, they're, they're, they're sitting right. in line to get gas for 45 oh, yeah. minutes. Like cutting a coupon and or they're, something. Yeah. And they're saving, depending on how big their car is, $5. I'm like, so your hour is worth $5, right? That's what you're kind of saying. So like, I, I don't get gas at Costco for that reason. Cause in my head, I'm always like my dad, <laughs> like, how much is your time worth? And then I don't do that. I, l- I left a pretty well paying prestigious government position Mm. to go work at Zappos. And people were like, that's risky. And I said, if I don't do it now, I'm going to regret it later. Yeah. Yeah. And the four and a half years I spent at Zappos were, I loved my job. I loved the people I worked with. Uh, I could... Wear whatever I wanted. I was surrounded by llamas. Yeah, didn't see it, you in that direction, but yeah, you're right. They were. It was like we were working seven days a week, twelve yeah. hours a day, and you enjoy and, it. But it wasn't work. I yeah. mean, it was yeah, like it was sure. enjoy, it was a passion. And that's where I'm at, at now. Point. I don't know if you knew that. That's where I'm at. Yeah, yeah, no, okay. yeah. It's <laughs> like no, I had a blast, and you know, and I I was having it was wild for me, and then now after experiencing that. Now it's, I value the time I spend at work. That's why I started my own company mm. because I'm like, wait a minute, I'm tainted for life. Yeah, I could yeah. never go back to work a nine to five and especially in government, even though I did a little stint of, of government after I left Zappos, mm. I was the art curator for the county. Oh. And I just, I realized for me that, that's, that having my own business is, is a currency. It's, it's mm-hmm. a money. It's, it's maybe not going to make me rich, but it's the freedom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it, happiness ultimately is, is key here. You know, to be able to have that flexibility, say, you know, I'm going to go take a nap. <laughs> yeah. I could do that. I could do that. I could go and take a nap. I said, I'm going to go take yeah. a nap. <laughs> like, where are you going? The <laughs> nap pod. It is weird, though, because my happiest times, some of them were the hardest working that I remember, too. Mm-hmm. It was right because right out of college, I had a startup with people who it was working like we just we we had software and people were buying tickets off of it and we had service fees and we made decent amount of money like right away and the only thing we were thinking of is like how big can we grow this thing and then you know we got investors and it felt like money was not going to be a problem at all in my life and then i spent with the team money like crazy paying other developers building tools that i thought venues wanted and when it really came down to it, other companies like Eventbrite were doing it so much better than I was. And I built things I thought people needed without really doing the research, I think, to truly build the right thing. And, you know, mm-hmm. the company eventually spent all the runway and shut down. And yeah, I still had skills to get a regular job, but it was such a weird experience to have spent all of my 20s on this roller coaster where I just thought it just can only go up. Or even if I get off at some point, it's going to be great to like watching the whole curve come down and then 
getting my first job that's like nine to five. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm like in my thirties and I just got my first like job of expectations. (laughs) And yeah. And it was just like, none of it was bad. It was always a good experience, but the most fun was actually the building up. And even some of the falling apart was some of the most interesting times. But some of the best startups happen. Some of the the founders of some of the best startups are all in their forties. And that's the thing. I mean, look at famous Amos cookies. I mean, he didn't, he didn't become, he was homeless. I am more comfortable with risk older because really? I look at it oh. as I'm, yeah, okay. I've, mine, mine are switched because when we were twenties, look, I did, I'm a product of the 1990s rave scene. I took a lot of risks. Trust me. <laughs> a lot of risk, blonde hair, candy beads, and lots of candy. Very yeah, risky. Gotcha. Um, but I've taken more risks now. And that has, but also I have an understanding. Because you feel like you can calculate them more now? But do you feel like, like it's kind okay of understand to fail? what risks there were? Oh, yeah. I, I, and, and I've had a, a big influence, you know, in my life uh, to be able to take those risks and to understand risk. Okay. And, but also being able to look at, at the world and see what's happening in the world and see, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen? Yeah. And know that you're going to be okay at the end, right? Because I guess exactly. when you're young, you don't, you haven't experienced failure yet. So it kind of seems like it would be the end of the world where I assume yeah. it's like, as you're yeah, older and you've experienced sure. it a few times, and you're like, oh, okay, well, I got back up. I guess I could get back up again. So you kind of, I, I assume that's, I don't know. I'm like, I'm still pretty risk averse. Like, I mean, I've still, I've been at the same company. Because when you imagine at, the fear of yeah, something, like it just a, hurts too bad to Yeah, take the it's risk. scary. It's too scary. Like, I, I mean, I would love to be an entrepreneur one day, but, you know, and I've had ideas and I was like, oh, I want to do this. But then the thought of like leaving my current job, which I love. So even there, even that, I'd need something yeah. to kick me, uh, and really get me out there. But that risk to lose what I have and fail at something that I mm-hmm. put all of that into is just, it's still too scary. I haven't experienced like something like that yet where I can be like, oh, I'll be fine. Um, yeah you'll be fine you'll absolutely <laughs> yeah for fine. sure with how many skills you have and i know you'd be yeah. a great entrepreneur for sure and that's the beauty of, of of american society and how we look at our relationship with our future and how what makes our country great uh and how other countries around the world try to emulate what so do you think that's built into the culture? And even if we hyperinflate, Americans will always just be inventing new things and building things and we'll figure it out? I, I, I don't think we'll hyperinflate. We'll find a solution. Yeah. And I think wow. that's the big difference between how we have been very successful in We're our resilient. society. We're resilient. And how we win wars. Mm. And, I, and I hate to bring it up again, but... When you are too top down in your decision making, such as the invasion of, of Ukraine, right, where the decisions are being made from the very top, now Vladimir Putin's making the decisions for his frontline people. So rigid, it's and too rigid. Where yeah, it's just not... the Ukrainians have taken the American model that allows the sergeants and the captains at the at on the front lines to make mm-hmm. those critical decisions. Yeah, you know, Simon Sinek talks about it. You know, and, and Simon talks about it in, in his Simon's in one of his one of his speeches about how you know pilots during the Af- Afghan war were would take um, would take risks uh, or uh, would target opportunities. The the reason why that happened, why the commanders in Russia um, don't let their underlings 
do things on their own is because then it threatens their their oh, it's wow. very ego based, right? You know, it's safety. Okay. It's safety because with them they're like, well, wait, yeah, if we based. give the front line too much freedom, they may want to over. Yeah, because yeah, it, what's all that? It's that kind of like scarcity protectionist value. Right. You know what I hadn't thought about till right now when you made that comment was if if I was Jerome Powell or somebody in charge of the government and, and money, it almost makes sense to to just let the citizens figure out money. Like if you want to just let yeah. all this crypto stuff go, just don't get in the way because yep. I don't know where some guy in Spoken some basement like a, in a some free market. Well, America. you know, a, yeah. a true free market. America. Well, it'd just be interesting. Be like, look at the dollar, you know, it's probably got a shelf life that's coming to the end, but America yeah. should be fine as long as we don't force people to like stop mining and, and we, and we let them have the reasons to learn their own lessons. Like, yeah, just, and I feel like we're learning a lesson right now. I like, up until very recently, crypto was just up, up, up. It was always yeah. just like diamond hands. That's all you heard about. Yeah. And now like you see people who are just like lost everything or much yeah. of what they put in there. And I think, you know, when when you only see people winning, more people join yeah. the game. They're like, I only see people winning. And now you see people losing. And I think it's making everyone else like second guess. Like, yeah. like I, I, saw, I never got into it, but like, I'm like, oh, now it looks yeah. even less enticing because yeah. well, we're learning. You know what's lesson. weird is, so I was pretty, especially with Ethereum and and uh, smart contracts, right? It's it's a mm. programming language, and yeah. it, and I thought to myself, this is amazing. Like years ago, I thought, wow, when we have programmable money, where money only can be used in sense of an oracle where you say, I'm going to send money to someone when a temperature hits a certain degree or when a certain amount of sales are done or when oh, a, a, somebody's in a certain location, it just opens up all these doors. Mm -hmm. And I, as hard as I tried to think about things that could be built, I never really thought about a stable coin. And then all of a sudden, this is like one moment I was like, stable coins are already starting to show up on the scene. And then I was like, wow, there could be like an entire mechanism of order books that keep something stable attached to something that's instable and mm -hmm. people get value from like arbitraging the difference and then i was wow. like wow like okay. some, but it's it's crazy how sometimes it's like so obvious and i just couldn't it just didn't click until someone built it and i was like oh wow that'll change the world and i'm wondering if someone just ends up figuring out like oh yeah we can make currency like recession proof or we can somehow do universal basic income we'll or it but we can do something that the governments issue. yeah the governments don't need we don't need wars because this mechanism encourages imagine like some kind of mechanism where going to war say there was a uh, some sort of cryptocurrency that created value each year and that automatically went to every country and all countries use this and wow. if they were to militarize mm it took that benefit away yeah. and it just slowly became so valuable to not start a war that mm -hmm. nobody started like something, some kind of mechanism like that, that yeah. controls the actions we take Ooh. as citizens. Have you thought about the relationship between people owning their private keys and having control of their money in a digital cryptocurrency in the same way that they would a gold and silver, you know, hold it in their hands versus mm -hmm. it being something mm -hmm. that's in a bank account where they're KYC'd and they're sort of pseudo in control of it. I'm so glad you asked that question because I've, I'm. Is that'll change our, every culture's relationship with money when the citizens have confidence? Absolutely. I think yeah. one of the frustrating things as a small business owner myself is the fact that I have to have a business bank account. And oh. I, it bugs me like to no avail. I, I work with a private bank here in town yeah. and they refuse to have anything to do with cryptocurrency. Yet what? I have customers, I have clients that pay me with Ethereum. 
yeah. or other cryptocurrency. Okay. And they're like, so I had to- You have to convert it all. And then uh, it's a nightmare. And then I can't yeah. tie my Coinbase account with my business oh, bank yeah. account, even though it's business revenue. Now I have to go through, oh, and it takes forever. So I can see why companies don't take it as a currency. That makes a lot right, of sense. Like, oh, the last transaction I did with a client was with Ethereum. Right. And, and all we did was just have our, we had our keys and the phones talked to each other and the, it was instantaneous. Right. But I have to transfer that money to one bank account, which then takes seven days to transfer it to the other. And I still have vendors, I still have artists I have to pay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But it's, it's almost like cash again, because when you lose your private key, it's gone. So right. it just makes oh. me wonder how relationships have to be so different because now you, you're the boss, like you're the boss of your money. But yeah. Like but, you can't yeah. hide... Banks will go the way of the dodo. Yeah. I and mean, then, like, but, taxes yeah. are going the way of the dodo thanks to yeah. Uber. But and, the right software, we Lyft. can all be our own bank. You know, like, we can charge interest loans and just, like, Absolutely. here's your here's one Bitcoin yeah. debt. That's just weird, yeah. I, I think that's the, the... The relationship will have to change big time, though, in every culture. Well, and, that, takes and it's up. generational. It's generational. I mean, millennials what there's 65 million millennials or 62 million millennials in the united states yeah you know and you have you know there's this i'm i'm lucky i'm a gen xer so <laughs> we're we're the latchkey kids you know and seeing the conflict between the baby boomers and the millennials and yeah. how the millennials are looking at money and how they you know and they realize you know you, you millennials are i i believe are smarter about money give me a good breakdown of demographics because that's just a fascinating thing like what's different about old people versus young people versus the middle across all countries we are in a big societal change because of our relationship with money and you know the world right now is over leveraged you know the value of our dollar or the value of currency globally is not what it used to be and we are at a point, we're in an inflection point, uh, very similar to where the world was in 1944, mm -hmm. where, you know, the fall of the British pound, the fall of the Dutch Gilder or the Spanish Real, uh, you know, we, you know, we need to make a decision. And it's the older generation doing everything they can to maintain the status quo and the new generation thinking outside the box. And it's a great time to be alive because we're witnessing it. Yeah. And for me, seeing what's coming as far as the younger generation and kind of seeing the older generation kind of panic about it, and I'm in the middle, mm. I'm like, I, I'm excited because as an anthropologist, I, I love observing culture and I love observing society, especially during times of turmoil. Wow. Because there will be, you know, change is constant and evolution happens quickly. And we just went through a global pandemic, which is cyclical. They happen all the time. Yeah. We just aren't, we weren't around. We weren't old enough to yeah. remember. But think of this. My mother was born in 1936. Her parents got married on January 1st, 1911. They remembered the last pandemic okay yeah, and so crazy. Crazy. now yeah. i'm living through this one yeah. with my mom who's 86 this year 
change happens rapidly, but it's a constant. And so I, I'm excited for the future. I you really would say am. on the big, big scale that when you think about getting off the gold standard and the Bretton Woods contract, the Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper will rank as a big shift culturally? Yeah, absolutely. It already is. Yeah. I mean, look at El Salvador. I mean, they... Yeah, they've accepted... Yeah. That's their yeah, national that's currency. That's crazy. Even though there's a little... You know, this is cyclical. I mean, Bitcoin is down, you know, but it will go back up. And I think it'll it'll go up fast, you yeah. know. But ultimately, uh, look at... Uh, I hate to bring GameStop... <laughs> Yeah, you know, bro, make a trade right now. That was that was that was. Are you? Let me tell you. Wait. Culturally, we're beginning to see societal change. Yeah, we are here to witness. That's it. true. I mean, it's a good example of a younger generation trying to take control from an old system. Yeah, they with their don't own like mechanism. the old systems. The old, you know, the how money was controlled by big institutions. They they don't like that, especially yeah. Gen Gen Z. You know, and millennials too. I think, but. Yeah, they're trying to buck the whole system, I think. Anyways, thank you so much, Paco. I appreciate you coming out. Uh, I definitely have my reading to do. And Ashley, thank you. I appreciate you coming out too. And thank that was you. a great conversation. It was, hopefully we'll have you back soon and keep talking about this kind of stuff because it makes everybody smarter. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you. All right.